At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. You're listening to the Urban Farm Podcast, your partner in the Grow Your Own Food revolution. Whether you've just been introduced to urban farming or you're a lifelong advocate, we're sure you'll leave feeling more informed, equipped, and empowered to dig deeper into the soil of your local food economy. With you every step of the way, here's your host, Greg Peterson. Today, we have Scott Murray on the Urban Farm Podcast to talk about his experience with avocado farming and urban agriculture. Scott has 42 years of organic agriculture production experience in the United States and Mexico. He has a multitude of experience with conservation, food production, and environmental leadership, including serving as an elected California conservation official for the last 22 years. Scott also specializes in farmland preservation projects utilizing smart growth principles. Welcome to the show today, Scott. Welcome. I'm really excited to be on your show, Greg. Thank you. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at now? Well, the path I've taken started with mom. Um, and the backyard garden we had in Marin County, where I grew up, uh-huh. um, and the stories about our family surviving, my mom and her parents surviving through the Depression, mm-hmm. because they had a two-acre city lot in Salt Lake City. So I've always been inspired to, to eat better by growing my own food. And I started out on the path of my growing while I was going to U- University of California, Santa Cruz, and I made about half of the money that I paid to go to school by growing in three lots that I leased around town. Wow, Um, how cool is that? Well, it was very cool because I had places that I could go in different climate zones of Santa Cruz, Uh um, and I sold to restaurants primarily, so I also had incredible trades uh, for (laughs) dining. (laughs) So you always had a good uh, credit for food out there, huh? It was... uh, stupendous when you're a college student you don't necessarily have lots of cash but uh, if you can take a a young lady out to dinner and sign the check it's pretty impressive yeah no kidding no kidding (laughs) so i also have been inspired um, to get started in actually being a farmer by a research project that i was assigned um, as a student at university of california and I wrote about the future of agriculture in America, and it scared the living daylights out of me. Wow. And so just for context, when was that? That would be 1972. Oh, all right. And uh, I was, you know, during my undergraduate and graduate time there at UC Santa Cruz, I was looking for a direction of my career. And uh, one part that I was always inspired by was um, growing food because the food that I could buy in the supermarket then was really dreadful. Ah, wow, even back in 1972. 
Well, back in 1972 is when the average produce department in a supermarket had about 120 items throughout the year. Uh-huh. And now wow. the average is over 600 wow. items throughout the year. And I remember wanting a salad one one Friday night and going at about 11 o'clock to this 24-hour supermarket. Uh-huh. And the cucumbers were limp. The lettuce was, you know, just ugly beyond description the tomatoes were rock hard and green mm-hmm. and i was standing there kind of going this sucks i gotta do something about it yeah so i started as an urban farmer on a very intimate level um you know an eighth of an acre a quarter of an acre and a half an acre mm-hmm. um, and i started to develop uh, my technique at growing organically and I was selling to chefs. And in, in those days, and for many years after that, we sold our products as gourmet because chefs had a bad oh, impression yes. about organic. Oh, yes. Interesting. And so we would say our items are gourmet, specialty you know, items. And if they were really concerned, they'd say, but how do you get this incredible flavor? How come your stuff holds up better than other people's things? Right. And then I'd tell them that we used organic growing techniques. Uh-huh. Perfect. Then what, what I aspired to was a career. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're going to college, it's like, right. where am I going with yeah, this? Yeah, exactly. And I was making already half of my income from, from farming. And I decided that, that that was where my passion lay, and I started to steadily increase. I did my first oh. full acre of double-dug beds. Oh, nice. And uh, one of the books that's been very influential to me in my career is John Jevons, mm-hmm. How You Can Grow More Food in Less Space Than You Ever Thought Possible. Yeah, that's a great book. And so... I double dug with my good friend Richard, who's still my friend to this day, thank goodness, <laughs> um, an acre of beds. And that was an epic job because you're lifting soil with your back. Right. And after that, I promised myself that I'd never double dig beds like that again. Yeah, it's a lot of work, that's for sure. And so I developed methods of using, for example, a rototiller to till a whole area uh-huh. and then shoveling up the walkways to loft the soil and create the depth. Right. And uh, that's been the basis of, of my agriculture to this day is building soil organically, creating the best possible growing conditions for the plants and providing all of the major micro and trace elements through organic um, ingredients so that the genetic potential of the things I was growing could be fully expressed. Wow. The, the full flavor, the full aroma, especially the full complement of vitamins, vitamins and minerals. Exactly. Wow. Do you apply this at a small scale or are, are we talking hundreds of acres here? Both. You know, right now, for example, I'm um, doing a project for the city of San Diego, developing a school garden mm-hmm. at, at a at a highly impacted elementary school um, where 100% of the kids are on free or reduced lunch. Oh, wow. And the, the principal wants not only an outdoor science classroom, but a community garden that will teach the parents how to grow food for themselves um, in what little spaces they have where they live. Nice. 
Um, now that is is an opportunity also to build soil in place yep. and to use the technique I was just talking about of um, you know lofting the soil into beds rather than making wooden box beds. Mm -hmm. um, and it just so works out that this area has several fire hydrants in it. So we met with the fire marshal this week uh -huh. and and found out exactly how we could comply creating this garden but not interrupting firefighters if there was ever a fire at the school. Oh, interesting. All the things that we have to consider. Now, are they taking that food, growing it, and then feeding it to the kids at the school? They will use oh. the food to, to feed to the students. Uh -huh. This particular garden will not produce enough volume, so what they're going to do is make it lessons about cooking. So they'll do cooking lessons, and the students in those classes will get to taste the food, um, and they'll rotate that around the school. Nice. Nice. So that's a big project. Do you have any small projects? Something like... Uh... Well, that's actually a pretty small project. Oh, it's, is it? It's a space that's only 75 by 100 feet. Wow. And it'll end up being about 20 raised beds. Mm -hmm. And it's this particular one is, is complex because we have to fit within existing systems. Right. And it's a partnership between the city of San Diego and the San Diego School District, which is unprecedented. Wow. Um, and we're going to do a soil building technique uh, called sheet composting. Mm -hmm. There's there's a lawn on this site on heavy clay soil. Right. And we're going to cover the soil across the whole site with about two inches of very high nutrition um, dairy-based organic compost. Oh, very good. And then about six inches of city-produced green waste compost. Oh, nice. Which is very good for organic matter but has very little in terms of embedded nutrients. Nutrients, right. Exactly. All of that will be, be carefully spread out and wet down very thoroughly so the water penetrates down, you know, at least a foot. Right. Th then we cover the whole thing with uh, six mil black plastic uh -huh. and hold that down to both solarize the former lawn and Bermuda grass and to create a soil building cycle, bringing the worms up and nice. and mixing the soil. That will take about two months. Uh -huh. Then we will open it up and actually rototill the clay-based soil into the organic matter several times to create the new soil and then loft that up into beds, shaping them with stakes and strings and so the walkways will be shoveled up. And that's a small project. Wow. <laughs> I just completed a project for the International Rescue Committee. IRC, yep. About 20 blocks away where they're creating a teaching garden mm -hmm. on an asphalt lot. We covered the lot with six inches of city mulch. Wow. And then in this place, we built 32 boxes that are four feet by 10 feet, uh -huh. laid out in a pattern with drip irrigation plumbed into each box. And we're putting organic soil into the boxes. So this teaching garden for at-risk immigrant youth mm -hmm. will be certified organic. Wow. And you put that right on top of the asphalt. We put that right on top of the asphalt. Wow. The mulch underneath creates a separating mat, which, which yep. deals with the runoff water mm -hmm. and, and creates actually extra space for roots to go through the soil into. And... Uh, it's literally in a, in a very urban neighborhood. We've already had 
two pop-ups stolen from the site and our tool shed and all of our tools. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I then explained to them how it's really important to mark all your tools. And the more ridiculously you mark them, the better. Right. Uh, I use bright fluorescent green and orange spray paint to create mm -hmm. bands on all the tools so I can spot them a block away. Right. <laughs> wow. And those are the two small projects right now. Oh, very good. So these are these are the kinds of projects that we, you know, anybody in a city could go get involved in, could create. You know, if you can build a, an amazing garden on top of an asphalt parking lot, uh -huh. or in the case of the school, you can build soil where there was very weak soil right. originally, mm -hmm. um, you can create a garden just about anywhere. Nice. Yeah. Nice. All right. And so uh, we mentioned avocados in you know, in the intro. So let's jump in and talk avocados. And we're not talking hundreds and hundreds of acres of avocados here, are we? Well, I live over overlooking Fallbrook, California, uh -huh. in Southern California, close to the coast, which is the home of the largest concentration of avocado production in the United States. Wow. Now, unfortunately, due to the increasing water cost and and scarcity we've lost 25 percent of our old avocado trees uh -huh. and we've been growing them in an old-fashioned way where we let the trees 28 to 30 feet apart square and they'd get 40 feet tall and then be stumped back down and they could do that about three times in their lifetime right but now these trees that i'm working with on 10 acres are 44 to 47 years old mm -hmm. that that's getting to the end of their economic lifetime. Wow. So what we've done is we've stumped those trees, and instead of letting them get very tall, we're going to keep them very compact, uh -huh. only 10 feet tall right. and, and, and 10 feet wide. And for the old trees, that'll require pruning each year. Mm -hmm. And then in line with the old trees, we're planting new, very high-performance avocado trees that are on modern rootstocks, and are designed for what are called high-density oh, planting. Very good. High-density, yes, exactly. Great. And, and the high-density folks are putting as close as four feet apart their trees. We're going with 10 feet, mm -hmm. but the average production right now on our old-style avocado groves is 6,700 pounds an acre. Okay. And with the 10 by 10 spacing in the second year, one of the test plots of an acre already is harvesting 20,000 pounds a year. Wow. And those trees, because they're so close, uh -huh. might, might not have the same 50-year economic lifetime. You might swap them out, for example, at about 30, 30 years. years. Mm -hmm. But they'll be so much more productive because they use the same amount of water as the large tree right. method but produce a lot more yield and they're more controllable because you prune them to be very compact and small. Got it. You don't have to climb up 20 foot ladders and use a, a 16 foot pole to pick the fruit. Right, I was, I was gonna say, and they're easier to pick that way. That's the big, big thing about urban orcharding is you wanna keep the trees smaller so they're easier to pick. And labor is a concern these days, even if it's just your, yourself. Right. Um, but the most exciting part about my work with avocados Hold on, is... I, want, I want a drum roll here. Let's do a drum roll. 
because <laughs> I know I actually know Scott. Scott's a friend of mine, so I've actually been to this project. Go, Scott. So what we're looking at is is the second most or the other probably more influential book in my agricultural career uh-huh. was Bill Mollison's first book on permaculture, uh-huh. which I bought back in 1977. Wow. And the concept of permaculture, basically learning from how natural systems work uh-huh. and, and trying to model them. And natural systems do not have monocultures. They have dense polycultures. So, now we're taking these avocado trees that we've stumped back and we're changing their type shape. And in the, the rows in between... Here it is, we, guys. Listen we up. Ca- we call them alleys. We're planting coffee trees. Isn't that fantastic? And the, this is based on, on 12 years worth of research done here in California uh-huh. um, by a, a farmer and the University of California Co-op Extension. And they recognized doing a project with lychee and longan that they were visiting Hawaii to look for cuttings to propagate Mm -hmm. that the avocado trees had coffee plantations all around them. And they thought, if the avocados survive in California, Uh well, wonder if coffee will. So they've been testing, and what we're planting is a very rigorous scientific um, planting of 11 different varieties done in across a 10 acre site we're planting five acres right now uh-huh. and that five acres goes from from a high ridge down a long slope to a valley bottom and then includes another sub ridge and so there are five test blocks uh-huh. where at the very top at the 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 two third the one third point the two third point the valley bottom and the sub ridge we're planting test blocks that have all 11 varieties wow. and then we're also planting larger blocks of between 100 and 200 plants of specific varieties that um, are unified in a big section so when we go back to pick we can keep the varieties um, sorted separately uh-huh um, and we have wonderful varieties like um, geisha, which is a 100-year-old variety out of Yemen, but that has always been one of the most sought-after coffee varieties. Wow. And pacamara and mundo novo and katura <laughs> and, and katura amarillo. So normally coffee cherries are red, right. but they can also be yellow. Wow. So... We're also designing this planting so that we can harvest the coffee and separate it from the cherry, the skin and the pulp from mm-hmm. the seeds in a commercial kitchen. Oh, because interesting. the skin and pulp are very tasty. Oh. And also contain quite a bit of caffeine. So I found one day recently going through the test planting in up in Santa Barbara County. Right that uh, I ate 35 of these fresh Uh red red coffee cherries. Well, at 35, I said, wait, I better stop. Uh And I realized later at 3 in the morning when I was still awake (laughs) that that I had probably drank four cups of coffee worth of caffeine in those cherries. Right. Um, So what we're doing is we're doing value added. Yeah, so we're going to preserve 
the the skin and pulp, mm-hmm. and it's going to be marketed to um, very exclusive smoothie bars. Oh, where they they make smoothies with different natural ingredients, where there's antioxidants and mm-hmm. and various things. So not only is does the coffee cherry have a lot of caffeine, but it also is extremely high in antioxidants right. and other good compounds. Um, so it could be used in a smoothie. It could be used in um, making of products like uh, uh, brownies or something. Uh-huh. And it probably could even be used in sushi. I'll have to work on that. Interesting. Yeah, you, you said that a moment ago, and I didn't know whether you meant to say that or whether that was a oops. <laughs> No, it was an oops. I meant to say smoothie instead of sushi. Right. But still, I mean, it, 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 magic can happen in that moment just like that. Well, and it and it does because one of the things being a grower for 42 years uh-huh. is we have to grow things. As a small grower, we have to grow things where we're not competing with the really big farms. Right. Because we still don't have the economy of scale working yep. for us. So. I've always done specialty items mm-hmm. like fresh basil and other cut herbs or um, specialty tomatoes, yellow tomatoes, mm-hmm. pear-shaped tomatoes, purple tomatoes, red uh, tomatoes with, with yellow interiors. Yeah. Something that set these fruits apart from you know just the mainstream green that was gas ripened to red. Right. Well, that, that really that is a significant weight as an urban farmer to actually go out and make a living in an urban area. You pick you pick a chef and you go to them and you say, hey, you know, what kind of specialty crops would you like me to grow? Well, A, you have to know how to grow. Right. You know, once you could take any packet of seeds and figure out how to get a crop out of it, yep. you've achieved the point where you can now go to go to a chef and ask them, what things do you really want that you have a hard time finding fresh and perfect? Yeah, exactly. And uh, it's like good arugula is is a good example or good uh-huh. basil fresh herbs unusual items that that they can use in their kitchens so one of the other large projects that i'm working on right now it's still in the planning and design phase uh-huh. is to build an organic farm adjacent to a golf course oh interesting that will supply specialty food items to the the country club restaurant on the golf course. Wow. Th- this particular group actually has four other sites, three of which have these um, top-end restaurants. Mm-hmm. And at a certain point, to stand above the crowd, a restaurant can't use just the big things, you know, the things right. that come out of the back of a truck from the really big suppliers. Exactly. They need an edge. So these folks are in a in a great climactic zone for heat, mm-hmm. uh, and we can take advantage of that to grow incredible melons and tomatoes. They have the commercial kitchens, so if we have a lot of tomatoes in the summer, they can make sauce that they can use in the winter. Oh, yes, exactly. It's it's like Putting opening a bottle it. of sunshine in in the in nice. a, on a cold night. Nice, 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 nice. All right. Well, that is, that is a lot of projects you're working on, and that is really cool. I'm I'm excited to see how they turn out. Oh, you'll get to. And there's <laughs> there, there's more that we didn't cover today, but that's fine. So moving forward, you know, I'm really curious about this uh, avocado and coffee uh, project you're working on, or polyculture. So you're going to send some pictures our way for that, right? That we can include on the show notes page. 
Yes. Perfect. And, uh, you know, as we go along, maybe in six months or a year, as you're getting, as you're actually harvesting coffee, maybe we can uh, get you back here and you can tell us all about it. I look forward to that. Um, one part that we didn't discuss about that uh-huh, please. is we're planting 2,300 coffee trees. Wow. And the interplanting spaces is for 500 new fruit trees. So we're going to do about 300 of the high-performance avocados. Right. We're going to do 100 mangoes. Oh. And we're going to do 100 other tropical fruits um, in selection. And we're working to determine, you know, the viability in that hundred of, of future crops. We've already right. tested mangoes at this site and found them to be wow. um, very uh, productive. Well, if you're growing and, avocados in this space, you're going to be able to grow mangoes. That's for sure. Well, there are different approaches to growing mangoes. Down in tropical Mexico, they turn into an, an enormous tree where right. there's like 24 per acre. And they're just right. huge and live for 50 years. We're going to use a method that was developed by in Israel that is is an espalier pruning, a very oh, nice. very heavily pruned and shaped um, trees that that keep this format of ten feet wide and ten feet tall, um, and uh, that become extraordinarily productive. Right. And the most exciting thing, and a key piece of advice uh-huh. to your please. listeners, yes, please, is that we want people to look for high performance genetics. Yes. When it, whenever they're selecting seeds, they want to either get the best heirlooms they can find from a quality source. If they choose to use hybrid seeds, there's organic hybrids as well as conventional. Um, those can give them an edge for, for challenging crops. Um, but they want to pay good money for their seeds. Don't try to grow cheap stuff because right. you'll put a tremendous amount of energy against basically one of your lowest costs mm-hmm. and it's difficult to overcome and with trees it's especially important yes because many times some stores will sell you an apricot tree that they brought into that region without even thinking about its compatibility and it it might not even fruit in in the climate that, that right. you're buying it for yeah but we have extraordinarily high performance um nurserymen. Uh, one of my all-time favorites is Floyd Zager, oh, who's yes. developed many of the modern nectarines, peaches, apricots, and the interspecies hybrids like plumcot and pluot. Yes, yes. Amazing stuff. So you might pay 5 or $10 more for a tree, mm-hmm. but you'll get a tree that is suited to your environment and is one of the higher performance trees that you get your hands on. So the same applies for me, for example. I'm going to test um, like two to three trees each of about 20 different um, mango varieties. Right. But I'm also working with a breeder who for the last 20 years has been working to breed mango trees that would withstand more cool Cool. weather and would perform right here on the California coast. Yes. Right next to avocados. Yep. And I'm very excited to to get access to his high performance genetics as he's able now to start propagating those trees. So so two things about that. First of all, what's the name of that mango? Well, he actually has nine varieties. Oh, he's he's okay. named because I just picked up. I, I'm here in Phoenix, Arizona, and I just picked up one that will go down to, from him through the Arizona Rare Fruit Growers Association that'll go down to 24 degrees. Right. 
those are the ones yeah that that and and that's that's good you know we may have a location where a conventional tropical variety yep. will will thrive but when we're pushing the edge we want to support these local breeders that are yes, yes. that are improving upon the material that we can use so never never scrimp on seeds yeah. and never scrimp on fertility because if you're going to eat what you grow you want that to have the maximum complement of vitamins and minerals right. and when you think about it putting a vitamin pill in your body that is extraction from various resources is yeah. one way to supplement but Nature really meant us yep. to get our vitamins in a complete matrix from the food we eat. From the food we eat. And that's a conversation in itself. I do want to go back. You keep talking about genetics here also. And I want to just call out, you did say hybrid and heirloom. You didn't say genetically modified. So I want to just make sure that what we're talking about here is the genetics is through breeding, where they actually cross-pollinate and and that kind of work rather than this whole notion of genetically modified correct let's let's just help people to understand how that works okay so an heirloom variety is something that is self-fertile it mm -hmm. will breed if it if it's cared for and you you take out the the weak examples it will breed true for generations and hundreds of years yep. a few a few of the tomatoes i like were first noted in the mid-1850s and, and 1860s. Um, now, a hybrid is like you and me, Greg. Uh -huh. We have two separate parents that are distinct. And what they've made, especially in your case, is is far superior than, than oh. what each contributed. Uh-huh. Thank you very much, sir. <laughs> and And so what we want to look for is certain things are, are a little more challenging to grow. So... Uh -huh. When a breeder hybridizes, he'll pick a parent that has a lot of built-in disease resistance and maybe one that has good production and good fruit shape, yep. let's say for a cucumber. Uh -huh. and, and if you're just growing a couple of cucumbers at home, it's not so important. But if you're growing them for economic gain, it pays to, to buy a better quality seed. Now, the concept of genetically modified is a whole different animal where we're literally taking genes that would never breed, never breed in nature, and and we're we're taking genetics from one organism and putting it into another organism. I'm going to say one species and take, putting it into a completely different species, like going from a fish to a tomato. That happens, yep. and it happens that within a family like Solanacea, they might use the genetics for. Um, eggplant roots to, to give tomatoes even greater root strength. Uh -huh. Or um, now, for example, we have a lot of problems with watermelon um, diseases. Mm -hmm. and, and there's another thing happening called grafting. Oh, so, yes, yes. Like fruit trees are grafted. Yep. You know, the Red Delicious is one apple tree in Washington state that one branch spontaneously changed to this wonderful apple. So all the other Red Delicious apples are propagated from that one branch. Uh -huh. So what we're also doing in, in vegetable growing, specifically in, in China, they're doing over a million acres of watermelon on pumpkin rootstock. Interesting. And the, reason, in, and the reason they would do that was, is because? Well, 
um, the pumpkin rootstock can resist the soil diseases that will uh, will severely limit the productivity of the watermelon. watermelon. Perfect. And actually can be more productive. You know, think about one of those really giant big pumpkins. Uh -huh. um, if you use that rootstock, it's it has it's a power packed rootstock. So we have heirloom, typically old fashioned that breed true. Yep. Hybrid that's two separate parents that are bred for quality and productivity. We have um, grafted, which is almost all fruit trees and yep. and now coming into vegetables and other things. Yep. And then out on the very edge is this concept of genetically modified. Mm -hmm. And that is actually a very positive scientific technology but I think that the genie has been let out of the bottle for the plant world in a very frightening way. Yeah. And what I mean is that in, in human nutrition right now, we're, we're making a lot of diabetics because of diet. Uh -huh. And all insulin for insulin-dependent diabetics used to come from cadavers, humans that shared their resource future into the future. And we now have far more diabetics than we could ever support with cadavers and a brilliant scientist that that I know in La Jolla uh, modified a strain of yeast to make human insulin so now diabetics worldwide are being supported uh -huh. by this insulin that's genetically modified mm. and but it's passed under the drug laws and it's so rigorous right whereas under food, the government set up rules that trust the companies producing the genetically modified um, organisms uh -huh. to tell us that they're safe. Got it. And that's a whole bag of worms in itself. <laughs> and I'd, so. I'd rather have the worms, personally. Uh, I, I'm with you there, too. I am with you there, too. So we need to get this wrapped up. And I got a couple of questions left for you. Good. Um, first of all, I, I, I wanted to check in with you. Um, any projects you're currently working on that you would like to share about? Well, I'm excited about a new project right now for a restaurateur up in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. She has um, two vegan restaurants and has lived in a development pretty close to her restaurants. But she's just buying nine acres um, outside Los Angeles right. in an agricultural area that'll only be a 40 minute commute to a restaurant, which is only like 25 minutes more. Uh -huh. But on that nine acres, she has a really good well, big plus. Oh yeah. And already she has about 600 avocado trees. Wow. And she uses wow, yes. $2,500 worth of organic avocados in her restaurants every single week. I was gonna say that was a monthly figure, right? And you said no. No, no, it's a weekly figure. Wow. She uses $10,000 a month worth of organic avocados. She pays more for her avocados than she pays to lease her two restaurants. Oh, my gosh. So, so, you're, so you're helping her put together an, an organic avocado orchard. And we'll go from a monoculture. There are also some citrus to one side, but it's primarily avocados. Uh -huh. And we'll transform it from a monoculture to an organic polycultural system that will supply probably 60 different items to her restaurants. Wow. That's taking it right home there. That is so cool. So one last thing. 
what one final piece of advice you have for our listeners? I mean, I know you've covered the gamut of so much great stuff today. Do you have one piece of advice around all this? Well, I like to tell my students, I teach um, at a college program out here, that everybody can become a farmer in four to five days. Mm -hmm. And all they need is enough room in their kitchen to to set down a piece of uh, business paper, you know, eight by 11. They can have four jars where they grow sprouts. And they start them in sequence so that like twice a week they have, uh, you know, half a, like a pint of fresh sprouts. Right. And it takes probably about three minutes a day because you'll rinse them twice. Uh-huh. And then another four or five minutes to start a jar because you've got to measure out a quarter cup of, for example, one of my favorites is garbanzo beans. Oh, yes, yes. So absolutely. I'll sprout those garbanzo beans in a quart jar, a quarter cup of beans, overnight soak, and then two rinses a day. And in four days, they're sprouted, have a little quarter-inch root, and you can make um, raw hummus just, oh. by, just by compressing them. Oh, my Let gosh. them go a couple more days. The root gets out to about an inch, and yep. I just love them in salads. Oh, yes, 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 um, absolutely. So everybody, no matter how much space and limited resources they have, can grow sprouts, and they can be a farmer in a week. And then if they have a couple room for a few potted plants, uh-huh. they can get some culinary herbs and add some fresh herbs to their cooking that they grow right in their kitchen windowsill if that's all the space they have. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show today and sharing your experience. It's been fascinating, that is for sure. If our listeners want to get a hold of you, what's the best way to do that? Well, I'd say right now my email, which is Scott A. Murray, M-U-R-R-A-Y, uh-huh. at sbcglobal.net. And I make my living these days as a part-time farmer and a part-time consultant to organic agriculture. Uh-huh. So I help people to develop projects to assess what they can do with their land and to implement them and help them train staff and do all the parts that make them successful at being a farmer. Thank you so much, Scott. It's been a pleasure to have you on the show today. And that's all for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen three days a week for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.